I was tasked this afternoon, uh, I say again, with the opportunity to bring a devotional uh, on the topic, especially of servant leadership. This is going to be the, the theme that we're going to be covering throughout the fall semester here at Puritan Reformed. And I know that many of you will not be here uh, to hear a lot of the topics or a lot of the sermons that are on the topic of servant leadership. But I thought that we would still together start our time off with this brief meditation upon this theme, especially since many of you are uh, servant leaders serving in your churches as, as pastors uh, as, or as simply lay people who also will be leading others uh, to follow Christ with you. And as I was thinking about where I might go in the scriptures to speak on this topic, I thought there might be no place better to consider this topic of servant leadership than uh, to look at it in the person of Jesus Christ as he's brought to us in the gospel of Matthew. It's here that we find those precious words upon which all of our hope has been laid, where Jesus speaks to us and he says, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto or to be served, but to minister. That is to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the greatest servant leader who has ever lived. And although Matthew's gospel contains so many pointed critiques against uh, the people, uh, the Jewish people of his day, even we think of the scathing rebuke that's found in, in Matthew chapter 23 and 24 against the leaders of his day. It's also here that Matthew sees fit again and again to give us a precious insight into the heart of our great king. We can think of this as we see it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where so often uh, a verse that many of us would return to where Jesus tells us that he is gentle and lowly. We can see his heart again as we look at his heart for children, as Matthew presents it repeatedly. We see Jesus' blessing children as the disciples seek to turn children away. In chapter 19, we see Jesus delight in the praises of children as he enters the temple in chapter 21. And in all these occasions and so many more that have not even begun to be mentioned, we see this beautiful servant heart of Jesus that stands behind all of his servant ministry. And there's even more to the beautiful servant heart of Christ that's seen throughout the gospel of Matthew that's found in Jesus's compassion for sinners. And that's what we saw in those opening verses and what we'll be spending our time briefly considering in this meditation. And so I want to first begin by looking at Jesus's compassion before we then look at the recipients of Jesus's compassion. So again, we saw this there in verse uh, 36 of chapter 9 in Matthew, where Jesus begins and he says he sees the multitudes and he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. It's this compassion that lies at the root of Christ's imperative then found in verses 37 and 38 as he implores the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest, which this whole uh, 
section here sort of stands as, as the gate that's going to open us up into Jesus is now sending out of the disciples in chapter 10, right? So we see he sees, he has compassion, and he does something in response to this compassion. We see this very same pattern repeated again in chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. Again, we see it again in the feeding of the 4,000, just one chapter later. In chapter 15, verse 32, as this compassion standing as the driving force that is behind Christ's provision for the people. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Here his compassion, demanding, compelling that he provide for the material, for the physical need of this hungry people. And finally, we see Jesus' healing of two blind men in chapter 20, with this very same heart of compassion that moves him to action. Many of us familiar with this story, but I want to read just these few short verses. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they had heard Jesus pass by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, the son of David. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried all the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, the son of David. And Jesus said still and called them and said, what will ye that I shall do unto you? And they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Interesting here that Matthew yet again is not content just saying Jesus saw, heard their cry and healed. But no, Jesus had compassion, and then touch their eyes. This Greek word for compassion that Matthew uses in these verses connotes an idea of passion as springing forward from the emotional seat of uh, springing forward from Christ's, uh, yes, the seat of his emotions. That's what's simply the impulse, the, the impulsive emotion, the impulsive affection, the passion that springs forward from him as he sees this need and responds with what? Compassion. One commentator has said that this is a gut level compassion. It's what's stirring from within him as he sees these things. Of course, Jesus experiences many holy emotions throughout his humiliation. We certainly should not understand Matthew to be undermining this reality as if compassion is the only emotion that Jesus has throughout his entire state of humiliation. But what we also don't want to do is to make that reality make us miss uh, the fact that the Spirit wants to teach us something here in these verses as again and again Matthew comes back to this compassion of Jesus throughout his ministry. 
You see, as Jesus witnesses the effects of sin in this world, his gut level response is not that of frustration. It's not that of anger. It's not primarily that of self-pity over the fact that he now has to keep pouring himself out after hours and hours and hours and hours of tireless ministry. No, as the great shepherd of Israel comes to his own and as he sees their shepherds making a people to be literally harassed and to be thrown down, his gut level response in all of his tired state after all of pouring himself out again and again is compassion for these people. As he sees a hungry or an in pain crowd, the immediate impulse of his heart is that of compassion. And this is what moves him to feed and to heal. As two men disregarded by the multitudes cry out for mercy. It's his compassion that moves him to heal and to save. I believe it's not a reaching statement to say that the compassion of Christ's heart is that which stands behind every act of the servant ministry, which he embarks upon both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. Matthew makes much of the servant ministry of Christ as the one who has come to seek and to save, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the same manner, even in the same way communicating this, he could have simply stated what Jesus did in response to needs. He could have simply said, Jesus saw the multitudes tired and hungry and he healed, he provided, he touched the eyes of these men. But Matthew is not content with this. You see, in these verses, we get, we get a sacred and a clear glimpse into the constant heart of compassion that constrains, even compels our Christ to be the beautiful, the all-sufficient, the soul-satisfying Savior that he is to sinners. And is this not the hope and the strength of every true child of God? That this is the heart of Christ in heaven now for us as sinners on earth. How many times has, has Christ drawn you, dear believer, or come alongside you in a time of need or affliction in your life and simply washed your feet? How many times have you cried out to him, even through desperation, maybe with a trembling voice, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, and found his heart not just to answer your prayer, yet moved by compassion to answer your prayer? How many times has he come so low to you to provide for your needs through a timely and a needed sermon, through a church member providing a physical and material need for you as he, through his body, provides for you, through the prayers of his people? Brothers and sisters, it is Christ's compassionate heart that moves him to do all that he does for such a people like us. It has always been his gut level, impulsive, immovable heart of compassion that makes him our sufficient servant, but also our sufficient savior and our sufficient king. And as we speak now of the personal enjoyment of Christ's compassionate heart for his people, we almost can't miss the recipients, which is the second part that I want to look at here as we look at who Jesus is showing compassion to throughout the gospel of Matthew. As we speak about it in terms of the personal enjoyment of it, it makes sense that we're now turning to the subjective. We're turning to us as recipients of this compassion. So this is what, what I want us to look at next. I find it interesting that in three of the four occasions mentioned by Matthew, 
Jesus is moved with compassion when he sees the multitudes, the crowds. If you go to Matthew's gospel and you search that Greek word, aklos, you're going to see that it's used, I think, 47 times. I don't have it here in my notes, but I believe it's 47 times. So you might say, well, why is that significant? He uses this term again and again. It can appear rather unimportant, right? We see the crowds everywhere throughout Matthew's gospel. And it's certainly not the the same personal makeup of the crowd, the multitude every time. It's not as if this is the exact same people following him everywhere he goes, right? And, you know, in one instance, we see the multitudes listening to Jesus' teaching and marveling. And they're there to witness the recipients of his miracles. And they're giving glory to God. In the next instance, they're singing Hosanna as he walks in Jerusalem. But in other instances, we see them being hardened by Jesus' parables. We see them demanding Barabbas from Pilate. The multitude doesn't have sort of a single response to the ministry of Jesus throughout Matthew's gospel. And the list can go on and on. There's more and more examples if you look at this for yourself. And so, like I said, though, this can appear unimportant at first, it's actually this exact point that shows us the marvelous extent of Christ's compassion as an unlimited compassion for all sinners of all kinds, where this, uh, where there is an image bearer, even a sinful one, the motion of Christ's heart is animated by compassion. There's not one who's outside the scope of his compassion. None who can say that it is not for them. And look at this, especially as we see the compassion of Christ in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, right? Here we have one of these instances where Jesus shows, where he has compassion upon a great multitude. We see the same paradigm that we've seen. Jesus sees, he's moved with compassion, and in this case, he heals. He does something as a response. So why is this the particular example I want us to consider in chapter 14? To talk about Jesus' compassionate heart for all men, for all women, for all children. Well, it's because, interestingly, it's this very crowd that John tells us was en masse an unconverted people. Matthew already hinted at this as he was talking about the crowd that's following Jesus in chapter 13 as he's giving these parables, saying these people are to be blinded and hardened through his ministry. But it's in chapter 14 now that we see again a great multitude. Jesus moved by compassion healing. John tells us in his narrative that this is en masse and unconverted people. John records Jesus' scathing rebuke of this very multitude, this very crowd. In John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, the crowd wasn't seeking Jesus from a heart that was pursuing God, but from a belly that was pursuing food. But Jesus still goes on to invite this people to feed on him by faith, saying that he is the manna which has been sent down from heaven for them to feed upon. But how do these people respond to his invitation? Even after he rebukes them for pursuing him simply to meet their hunger in their stomachs, not understanding what's going on. We think, well, certainly after this invitation, right? If Jesus showed such compassion upon a people, if he was moved by compassion for such people, then we must see a people who are going to respond to him with faith and repentance. Far from it. 
John 6.60, how do they respond to his invitation? Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Then finally, in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples, that is, who were many who were part of this multitude, who were part of this crowd, went back and walked no more with him. Brothers and sisters, these men and women, those who turned away, this is the great multitude of Matthew 14, 13 and 14. This is the crowd of whom it is written. When he saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. These are not even a people seeking after Christ for the right reasons. And yet, so far as Christ sees, his heart is moved with compassion for sinners. Marvelously now, even for us, the same heart remains. The scope of Jesus' compassionate heart in heaven is as broad as the scope of his all-seeing eye. None can say such a compassionate heart is not for me. If the constant service of Christ were not enough to challenge uh, those of us who seek to walk in his steps as we simply look at his constant service externally in terms of the life that he lives of pouring himself out, pouring himself out, pouring himself out. How much more is the compassionate heart that provokes all of his service a challenge and a privilege for us? who want to walk in his footsteps. As we see such a compassionate heart, we can't help but take that small glance inwardly and say, how many times have we fallen short of such a heart for the afflicted in this world? And if we know nothing of his compassionate heart ourselves, how can we serve one another? If we know nothing of this compassionate heart transforming us from the inside out, nothing of the spirit giving us this heart of Christ as we behold him, how can we serve others? How many times has our primary impulse, that gut level reaction for ourselves when we see suffering been rationalization of our coldness and of our indifference or Immediately questioning whether or not this person has brought it upon themselves or whether or not it's been brought upon them by another. How quick are we to simply think our way out rather than having this heart of compassion? How many times have we looked at those who are poor, those who are homeless, those who are helpless and responded with a concern for self-preservation or comfort rather than compassion? Christ's compassion is especially pertinent, I believe, in a time where our nation seems to lie in ruins. We look around us and we see the fruits of the sexual revolution, unapologetic homosexuality, transgenderism, the murder of children, cohabitation between couples, divorce being even as common as marriage. We see the rulers of our nation seeking to cast off the cords of God's rule, find themselves saying the words of Psalm 10, 6, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. We see it everywhere around us. We see it in our rulers. But how often do we see the state of the unrighteous in our nation and respond with only anger, frustration, disgust? 
Now, as I've previously stated, we must not understand the theme of Christ's compassion in Matthew to teach us that this is the only emotion that Christ has, right? Christ, too, is angry as he sees the state of our nation. Many of these things are an abomination to him. So conformity into his image will mean righteous anger when we see Romans 1 playing out right in front of our very eyes. However, brothers, sisters, as we read these verses, we must also see that conformity into the image of Christ means a heart of compassion for all men and women, even in the midst of righteous anger. A quick glance at a social media accounts of many professing Christians evidences that we have not followed in the footsteps of our Savior in knowing his compassionate heart for all men, women, and children. J.C. Ryle commented on one of our verses saying these words, the man who does not feel compassion for the souls of all unconverted persons can surely not have the mind of Christ. If our sinless savior had such a heart of compassion as we have seen, how much more ought we sinners who stand by grace alone with the only thing separating us from those who are outside being grace, being the reception of compassion, the compassionate heart of our savior, how much more we ought to have a heart of compassion as we look at the world around us and see it dying. How much more ought we to have a gut reaction of compassion when someone is caught in sin and steps into your counseling room, ashamed, seeking to know what to do next. How much more ought we to have a heart of compassion when our children disobey our commands or when our neighbor has wronged us, how much more ought we to be a people known above all by our compassion uh, that fuels a constant self-denying service again and again and again. And may God make us to be such a people, not only through our union with Jesus Christ by faith, but also by walking closely with Jesus Christ, communion with him and to know his compassionate heart. May we see and know such a compassionate heart fueling and producing our ministry as we look to the dying world around us that we too may know what it is to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For it was Christ himself who said, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Please pray with me. Our father, as we behold your marvelous son, in all of his beauty, especially in his precious compassion for us. We know, O oh Father, that it is that compassion which in part leaves that throne of grace opened. It is that compassion which drove him to the cross to be the savior of sinners like us. Lord, we are brought to our knees for how often have we had not a heart of compassion for those in the world as our great savior has. So, Father, do cleanse us in the blood of the Lamb this morning. Give us precious reminders of the full and complete forgiveness of sins that is found in him of the words of Micah 7, that you will again have compassion upon us. You will again tread our iniquities underfoot. And, Lord, as we taste of this precious heart of compassion that's found in our Savior, we ask that you should make us a compassionate people in our ministries, that you should make us a compassionate people in our marriages, in our churches, in whatever vocation you have called us to, Lord, may that gut level reaction as we see affliction, misery, sin, as far as the curse is found, where we see it, may we respond 
with such compassion as is seen in our great Savior. We pray this for his name's sake and for his glory. Amen.